0: everyone. This is Reggie. Welcome back to Reggie's Comic Stories, episode number 15. You can find me every other Wednesday on ChrisAndReggie.com, and I alternate with my uh, recording partner, Chris, who does Chris's Infinite Earths on the other Wednesdays. And, of course, we have Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill every Sunday, uh, and uh, we hope to do an episode of Weird Comics History sometime in the future. So, uh, ChrisandReggie.com is where you find all the archives You can pick us up from Stitcher dot, Stitcher, sorry uh, What else is there? Uh, Podbean, uh, Google Play iHeartRadio, Spotify And uh, well, da-da-da D-D-D Whatever the heck you want to put in there So today I want to talk about um, Kind of what, what we do here at Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill You know, we tell we talk about history And comics history in specific But often we, we branch out into other topics and stuff and the thing about talking about history, uh, you know it's always done in hindsight, obviously since it is history at that time. Uh, is it forces you to create a narrative. Uh, you, you tend to connect disparate events to create a narrative that makes sense that can be easily retold. Uh, you know for example, in American history, uh, the common narrative especially you know if you learn it in grade school or middle school, would be that the Boston Tea Party happened and uh, that was a response to unjust taxation and then that led to the, uh, immediately to the uh, American Revolution. Uh, and that is, there is some truth to that, that, that those events did happen more or less in that order and there is some causation there. However, when you look at the events directly uh, and more closely, you realize that there was more to them. Uh, the The... Boston Tea Party was really a acting out by a bunch of uh, merchants and landowners that had painted themselves to look like Native Americans. Uh, you know, the, the, the tax in question was actually very small and uh, may have been warranted, uh, depending on your perspective. And that's really what it's all about, is your perspective on the event in question. Uh, if you're talking about it after the fact, if you're talking about it from second, third, and... So on, you know those those uh, type of sources. Then uh, you're going to be forced to create a kind of narrative. Uh, But if you were there, if you lived through it, uh, or you were closer to the event, then uh, you may have a whole different perspective on it. So, in specific to this, uh, there is a a popular narrative in comics history that when Jim Shooter became uh, Marvel's editor in chief in 1978. On that day, more or less, many Marvel creators who just couldn't brook the idea of him being in charge uh, tendered their resignation and went straight over to DC or to Black and White Comics or both. Um, And there is some truth to that. Uh, You know, Jim Shooter, for all of his uh, good qualities and his ability to put out quality comics on a timely schedule did not work well with a lot of uh, talent. And uh, that was to his detriment later on. But it's not that simple, that it wasn't just a matter of, you know, if Jim Shooter goes, I walk or whatever. Uh, it, it, you know, things kind of happen over a different course, I guess. Uh, and no one would know better than the people involved in the actual event, the actual time that it happened. So to that end, I would like to read something today from, uh, obviously, another something from Tomorrow's Publishing. I uh, can't get it These guys really are the premier... Uh, publishers of comics history, and if you're not, uh, you know, using their wares, then I don't know what, what's going on. But, of course, go to tomorrows.com, twomorrows.com, two for more of this kind of stuff. But this is from their magazine, Comic Book Artist number no. 7, which uh, came back way back in the earlier 2000s. It's an article called The Great Marvel Exodus by Chris Knowles, transcribed by John B. Nutson. And uh, this is uh, short little interviews with a lot of the people involved that would have been perceived as having uh, left Marvel at exactly this time in the late 70s. And, you know, why they did it. And, of course, their, uh, you know, reactions to it is going to be a lot different. So let's just jump right into it. It starts out, all good things must come to an end. And so it was for the halcyon days of the 70s Marvel bullpen. One by one, many of the great names who had become so familiar to fans began to vanish from Marvel credits by 1978. All had different reasons and motivations for leaving, so here are some of Marvel's most notable comics creators to explain in their own words their reasons for moving on. All were contacted via phone in January 2000. Start with Len Wein, that was, uh, it says here, and it is true, Marvel's top writer in the late 1970s. Len had previously served as editor-in-chief of the House of Ideas, and that was for about a year, uh, in 1976, I want to say, 75, maybe, something like that. Uh, Len says, it was a combination of factors, actually. At the time, I was writing Fantastic Four, Amazing Spider-Man, Mighty Thor and Incredible Hulk all at the same time, and I was getting too obsessed about the little day-to-day details of the job and going crazy. At that point, DC was wooing me like crazy to come back and work for them, and Jeanette Kahn made me incredible offers of all kinds of things that I could have, could have if I came back. It was sort of, I was sort of resistant for a while. Then they finally offered me Batman, Detective Comics, right after Steve Englehart left. Marshall Rogers was continuing with the book, but they needed a new writer, and they offered me Batman, my all-time favorite character. I thought about it and said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so I gave them a tentative yes on the gig, and I went to tell Stan that I was taking over a book at DC as well. Stan didn't think it was right or fair, but I kind of explained that I just needed to do a little distancing if I was going to keep myself sane. And finally, with great reluctance, he said, all right, fine. You have to write Batman, then write Batman, but we don't want you to use your name on the book because you're top writer on our four top titles. Use a pseudonym and do what you've got to do and we'll live with it. But he was clearly not happy. I called DC back and said, okay, here's the deal. I can do the book, but Stan doesn't want me to use my name on the title. I have to use a pseudonym. Of course, DC was not happy because what they wanted to do was promote me writing the Batman book. So now I had pretty much what I wanted, the four top books at Marvel and Batman at DC, and nobody was very happy. Rather than have everybody unhappy with me, I thought that maybe it was simply time to take take a clean break, take the deal DC was offering and use my own name, and give myself a chance to sort of refresh my batteries and take on other projects. So I finally said that that was the thing to do. I had gotten too obsessively involved in my Marvel books, and I came back that Monday and basically sat there with Stan and said, Look, I want to use my name on the Batman books, and if that means I've got to go, then I will leave. It took Stan so many years to understand my feelings, but it was like, I gave you what you wanted, I said you could write Batman, why are you leaving? I just felt I needed it for my own mental sanity at the time. So the That's interesting because a lot of times by the late 70s, Stan Lee barely figures into uh, people's, a lot of narrative as the publisher. He's considered to be uh, a California guy pitching to the studios and whatever and trying to get Marvel properties and succeeding in getting Marvel properties on television and film. Um, But he was still the president of Marvel. And uh, when Len Wein had to talk to someone about quitting, That was the guy he talked to, not the editor-in-chief So that's somewhat interesting Who actually may have been at this time uh, Archie Goodwin Now we talked to Jim Starlin It says here he was Marvel's psychedelic superstar uh, Was writer-artist of such cosmic comic series As Captain Marvel and Warlock Jim said, uh, basically I did Captain Marvel and Warlock During that time and when I left finally The permanent time was to go and work in animation in California I worked for Ralph Bakshi for a while. Eventually I ended up coming back and doing some more work for Marvel after a while because the animation wasn't where I wanted it to be. I came back and did the end of the Warlock series, which was inside those two annuals. I left for some reason after that again, I guess just to go off and work for different companies. I did some work for Warren for a bit, some commercial art and things like that, and finally Jim Shooter approached me on the death of Captain Marvel. I was working for Epic Magazine too. I stopped working for Marvel Comics, and I was doing work for Epic. I had very fond memories of working on all those characters. It was a time when you'd get in and play with their characters, which you can't do uh, much of right now, because they're corporate entities. Well. Steve Englehart says here, one of the true visionaries of comic book writing, Steve's work for titles like Captain America, Defenders, and Doctor Strange rank with Marvel's best. Uh, And he had a great run on Batman too, I'll tell you what There had been a series of editors at Marvel Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, Archie Goodwin And a new editor that came in and decided that since he was editor-in-chief He should be able to write whatever he wanted to write And so he told me he was taking the Avengers And he told Steve Gerber he was taking the Defenders Neither of us, I mean, we didn't like it And that's basically why I left I went over to DC straight from there and did the Batman stuff, and then I left the country for a year, and when I came back, I did a few things for Warren and stuff, but mostly I was writing a novel and getting off into computer games and stuff. All I ever really wanted to do was be a Marvel Comics writer. I really liked Marvel Comics. It felt really good to do it. I got immediate positive feedback on the stuff I did, and immediately made people take notice both inside and outside of Marvel. So I'd started my career and pretty much worked entirely at Marvel I'd done a few things for Warren, Vampirella and stuff like that But basically I was what I wanted to be Which was a Marvel Comics writer So there's someone, I don't know why he doesn't name him But there's someone that did leave primarily because of Jim Shooter Along with Steve Gerber Although if you go to our episode on Starbrand uh, Cosmic Treadmill And I don't have the uh, number handy But it's uh, before 100 I believe uh that's our bio on Jim Shooter and we from his perspective he took them off the books because they couldn't make deadlines and that was his primary focus the first year that he was editor in chief was just to make sure the books hit the stands on time anyway moving on George Perez one of Marvel's hottest young talents in the 70s George is best remembered for his work on Fantastic 4 and the Avengers in 1970s Marvel, that is, but we'll leave it where where that is. Anyway, he says, George, uh, George says, In my case, actually, the initial departure wasn't because of anything I had against Marvel, but because of the fact that I was offered by Marv Wolfman, who had gone over to D.C. a new series of the Teen Titans. And my goal, since I was doing the Avengers, was to get a crack at doing Justice League of America, which at that time was really the book I was interested in doing, when unfortunately Dick Dillon passed away. I ended up having the chance of taking over JLA as well doing the Titans book I promised for Marv. So after a while, it became obvious that I couldn't maintain a schedule of three monthly team books. So I dropped the Avengers, which happened to be the only thing I was doing for Marvel at that point, not because of any political reasons, but because I'd already been doing that one. The other two were new, and in retrospect, I probably thought that I'd eventually be returning to the Avengers because I didn't think Titans would be a successful book anyway. And obviously I wanted JLA. As we all know, the Titans did succeed, ended up being a book that occupied most of my time. So it wasn't until the big political football of the JLA Avengers book that I actually stopped working for Marvel in any capacity, because I'd been ticked off at the politics of that and did not do any more work for Marvel for the next, God, close to 10 years, I guess. So my actual departure from Marvel was later than some of the others were. I had already started doing doing most of my work for DC, but I was doing occasional things for Marvel at that time. I signed an exclusive contract with DC Comics after the JLA Avengers debacle. Going on to Gil Kane says he was one of the true living legends of the comic book field. Gil was Marvel's top cover artist in the 70s, and he said it was the end of a natural period. I'd been with them since the 60s, all throughout the 70s, and by the late 70s I had landed a newspaper strip called Starhawks, and so I left comics to do a daily two-tier science fiction strip. The big thing was it offered greater possibilities. I would still occasionally do work for Marvel. It was just that I was no longer part of the day-to-day crew that did all the heavy lifting. Every company goes through a period of evolution, and by the 1970s they had become another company. I think Shooter had come into the situation as being totally in charge, and a new set of editors, and it wasn't quite... Roy was gone, and the thing was that it wasn't the sort of loose outfit that you found during the mid and late 60s and early 70s, where in effect, there weren't many restrictions on what you did. The biggest problem was to get you to do it. By that time, I think Jack had gone and come back, and so their whole identity was undergoing another transformation and it was the identity that Shooter Forged that would last for another 10, 12 years. It was a different sort of company, and as I said, opportunities abounding, Uh, and besides, DC made an effort to recall some of their earlier people, and they were also going through a process of reestablishing themselves with new identities and new artists, and I believe it was John Byrne took over Superman, and so it was a very competitive period, and you looked for a situation of your own that was not where, in effect... You weren't such a cypher in the works. When you were a cypher, at least at Marvel in the early days, nobody bothered you. That is, you were allowed to your idiosyncrasies, provided they liked your work. Later on, it became more a more rigid sort of place. It headed over the, here to certain situations. There was a political situation in the office that became stronger. The management team became a real force, as opposed to the creative. And of course, Gil Kane's take on the situation is, uh, you know, paramount. As far as I'm concerned, this is a man with a long view of comics and a long view of Marvel comics. But as we also know, that a lot of what Marvel's uh, change to a corporate culture had to do with Martin Goodman uh, stepping down from Marvel in the early '70s and sort of uh, a more gradual encroachment of, uh, you know, corporate needs coming in uh, just from the. New management, really, you know, DC had a different situation where they were bought by uh Kinney parking meter, by Warner Brothers via K- Kinney parking meters or something like this, but Marvel just sort of developed their corporate culture in response to, I think, the changing world and uh, the way the workplace was changing in general. Got a quick comment here by Gene Colin, a master craftsman whose skill for realism and dramatic storytelling is unmatched. Gene drew nearly every major character for Marvel during his tenure there. He said, I'm trying to remember why I left Marvel at the end of the seventies. Was Shooter in charge at the time? Yeah. And he responds, That was the reason. And as comic artist asks, Okay, is it all you'd like to say? And Gene says, It's enough. I think you can fill on the spaces yourself. He was difficult and threatening and said he didn't have and he didn't have a and he doesn't have a good reputation. This was after Stan left. I thought Stan might have left somewhere in the early to mid-80s for California, so I'm not sure of my dates, but when Shooter came aboard, it was downhill. I could see the handwriting on the wall, and I didn't want to continue with him at the helm. He was making life too difficult for me. He made it too difficult for a lot of other people as well. Don McGregor, who uh, says here, brought a new kind of socially rel- relevant storytelling to Marvel on titles like Jungle Action and Power Man. His work bridged the gap between comics Old Guard and the then-burgeoning counterculture. He said, It's not so much that I left Marvel as Marvel left me. You know, the work for higher contracts had come in, and I'd been willing to sign them, and furthermore, I'd been willing to let anybody change my material in any shape or form that they wanted to, perhaps I could have stayed in the hallowed halls a little longer. When I refused to sign the work-for-hire contracts, about three weeks before my son was born, I was told never to darken the hallowed halls again. And now that's something I I really don't fully understand, because my understanding is those contracts were essentially printed on the back of the paychecks. So if you... Accepted those checks, then you accepted that contract, but maybe something had changed that I'm not aware of uh, In the late 70s, maybe when direct deposit became a thing uh, that was no longer the same issue, but uh, This was a matter of he was he didn't leave Marvel Marvel left him You know what I mean? Roy Thomas uh, and goodness, uh, you know this person looms large not only for Marvel and comics as a whole, but For this very publication and tomorrow's publishing But uh, it says here Roy was If not one of Marvel's founding fathers And certainly one of the major figures in the company's evolution And he says of course now it's all kind of water under the bridge Because I'm back doing a little work In fact I did quite a bit of work in the late 80's on through And it sort of made my peace with Jim Shooter and so so forth as it is And it was Tom DeFalco who kind of brought me back in but at the time, in 1980, I guess it was, it was kind of an unpleasant situation. The basic thing is that, while I didn't really know Shooter or know that much about him, I'd met him a few times when he was on staff for a few weeks. We said a couple of words and so forth, and the next thing I knew, he was gone. Once I got in there, I didn't have much to do with him one way or the other. But what happened is I had a situation after I'd left being editor-in-chief in 1974 Were to keep me from leaving and going to work for DC or somewhere, which I was thinking about doing at the time just for a change in scenery, I'd gotten a contract to be writer and editor of my own material, just so I could handle it myself. I remember that I called Stan late 1977 or dropped him a line and told him that if Archie Goodwin left being editor-in-chief that I really hoped that Jim Shooter didn't become editor-in-chief. While I had respect for his talent and I barely knew him personally, I just had a feeling that we wouldn't work together and that I, I felt there were a lot of other people who might feel the same way, although I couldn't speak for anybody but myself. Of course, I'm sure d- j- Shooter saw the letter. So that didn't do any good. Anyway, somehow or another, we went off on the wrong foot, but we were never really had much to do with each other. We talked on the phone a handful of times, but when 1980 rolled around as the second of my three-year contract as writer and editor was about to come up, The books I was doing, a lot of them were doing pretty well, but Conan had been one of Marvel's better sellers by the middle to late 70s, and if Invaders wasn't a huge hit, then some other things I was doing were. I just had this feeling that things might not work out, so I said to Stan, look, I know that there might have been a bit of bad blood between me and Shooter simply because he knows that I wasn't wild about the idea of his becoming editor-in-chief, but he's become editor-in-chief, he's that. He's editor-in-chief, and I've got no problem with that. If you don't want to give me a writer-editor contract, I understand. If the policies change or whatever, that's okay, just let me know. And I will spend my time and I'll spend a few dollars talking to a lawyer about the contract and we'll just part company and that's it. You know, I felt I could be as upfront as I possibly could if they didn't want it, uh, they didn't want it, and that was their business. All I ask is that you not negotiate with me if it's not going to be a writer-editor contract because that's all I'm interested in having with Jim, with Marvel. Shooter said, you go ahead, you make up the contract however you think it should be, and then send it to me. So I did, and I think it was almost the same contract, except I made it, so now I report it to him. I just had a few changes I made to it. It wasn't anything to my advantage at this stage. And I sent it in, and I suddenly get this letter back from Shooter that says, We cannot guarantee you in writing for you to be a writer-editor. Naturally, we would want to use your editorial expertise, but I can't guarantee you anything like that in writing. I just mentally blew up, because I thought, this guy has wasted my time. He's wasted a little bit of my money, because all I said was, just be honest with me. Don't lie to me. So that was it. That was the end of it. I don't have a vendetta against Jim Shooter anymore at all, or anything like that. But it was one of those things where I felt, this is a matter of history, to the extent that why did Marv Wolfman, why did Roy Thomas, why did a number of people at that time leave? It's just the honest truth. That doesn't mean that I was right, that there was no necessary right and wrong, as far as whether they should or should not have given me a writer-editor contract. Maybe there's some circuitous reasoning that somebody can figure that they dealt fairly with me. Well, and we've actually told uh, that story before, not in these specific words, but it was something uh, specific, I believe, also uh, surrounding Star Wars, that they wanted Roy Thomas to continue writing that, and uh, he kind of made them a deal that they had to refuse, essentially, uh, or felt they had to refuse. So this, it was over writer contracts. And, you know, for all of the people that talk about how much they uh, didn't like Jim Shooter, Roy Thomas is the only one that I know that has these kind of specific details about this contract. So uh, that is interesting. Uh, it seems like a lot of people just didn't like his style or he had a threatening tone. This actually was a uh, legal rift. Only a couple more people here. We got Jim Mooney, one of Marvel's most reliable draftsmen. Actually, left the firm in the mid nineteen eighties, and he said, "I was not necessarily ready to retire, but when I queried Jim Shooter about it, I got a very short note: retire. I was ready to retire anyway, although I didn't. I really didn't. Didn't bother me too much because there was a lot of other things I wanted to do anyway. At the time, I was painting and working with ceramics." And I thought, well, I'm going to enjoy my retirement doing a lot of the things I didn't necessarily have the time to do when I was under deadline pressure. So, not so bad, really. And then, finally, Klaus Janssen, a one-man inking army for Marvel in the 70s and early 80s. And he left the company shortly after his acclaimed run on Daredevil, which would have been the uh, fairly early 80s. Uh, and he still works today. By the way, uh, he said, "When I left Daredevil, I went to DC and signed a one-year contract with them, and that was again to try something. I wanted to see what it would have been like, what it would be like being an exclusive person to a company. I'd never done that before. I wanted to pencil more, but I thought that penciling and inking a monthly book, which was twenty to twenty-two pages, was too much for me to develop an individual voice. And I wanted to go somewhere else with my work, in terms of approach or point of view." If you do that amount of work for a month, it's very hard to give yourself the time needed to be creative, and push a little bit, and and DC at that point had a whole spectrum of books that had short stories in them. Marvel had nothing. There was no place you could do a 10-page story. For that reason, and for a couple other reasons, but that reason primarily, I went to DC. At least for that year, exclusively. And that's uh, all we got for the recollections of the people that left Marvel in the uh, late 1970s. Another person whose opinion I'd love to hear, or love to have heard, I guess, would be Marv Wolfman. Um, I would love to have known Archie Goodman's take on the entire thing, although uh, it was his leaving that sort of precipitated Jim Shooter coming in Uh, Anyway, so obviously Jim Shooter played a big role in it But uh, I think to say that it was a one-for-one swap is incorrect Uh, You know, he came in, he implemented some new policies uh, People bristled at them Beyond that, people also, you know, they wanted to do new things Uh, You know, in the 1970s, Marvel had probably its craziest decade In terms of, you know, different books and uh, what happened in the storylines um, but they, they had, like, you know, Len mentioned People writing four uh, and five books They had, you know, people penciling, you know uh, Gosh, John Remeter was was penciling like three books at one time And uh, Ross Andrew was, was in there doing a couple of books So it, it was just a ton of work And I think over at D.C. Uh, they had a little less catch as catch can they, There's even stories about how over at D.C. they always were a Uh, jacket and tie kind of operation where Marvel was a little more freewheeling but anyway that will end my spiel for today the uh, audio telling of this uh, wonderful little essay I do of course as always recommend you go over uh, get this issue of comic book artist number 7 or get yourself a subscription to uh, alter ego comic book artist Uh, what's the other one there's other ones too back issues and uh just have a ball with their catalog. It is unbelievable. You can get digital versions, so you don't need to have the stuff clutter up your house if you already have other paper goods cluttering up the house. Um, yeah, you gotta check it out. Tomorrows.com, Two Morrows. Uh, I, w- I would love to know what everyone else thinks. I know there are uh, a few patrons who are uh, big gym shooter fans, or at least, you know, of that era of Marvel. Uh, I'd love to know what some of you guys think and what anyone thinks about uh, it generally, you know, the broad view of history as as opposed to the uh, more close examination of historical events. It always yields interesting details that uh, kind of uh, color the entire thing. But anyway, you can reach us over at uh, WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash History. On Instagram and Twitter At Cosmic T-Mill And I'm on Twitter At Reggie Reggie Find our weekly writings On DC Comics Over at WeirdDC oh, WeirdScienceDCComics.com And Chris has daily writings Currently about Action Comics Weekly uh, In his Oh I don't know 11th week Or something like that Over on Chris Infinite And don't forget Next Wednesday He will be here With his solo podcast And our website ChrisAndReggie.com And If you want to be a patron you can go ahead drop five bucks get a free pin some other stuff patreon.com slash chris and reggie and uh, that will be it for this episode so thanks for listening everybody hope you enjoyed it and i hope you have a wonderful tomorrow into the weekend and on into the rest of your lives just to get a girl that's how it all got started, compulsive in the area of lies Cause one seems to be adored by all Not the right call from the outside, you'll know the depth of the blow I have a million in the bank and it's all mine A third of it invested in salt mines Material wealth may be the least in a girl's eyes Such a bold man with charisma, phrasing for the less complex Dig it, you're bound to get dissed by the sister Flowing the intentions of a pure heart, follow me now When I say this way, you must walk with your old job talk